Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to another Pole Position with You Got It, me and Joshua Zimmerman, because you are now listening to part two of our recording on Piłsudski. For those of you who have missed out on part one, make sure you head back and actually listen to it. But just in case you don't know who Joshua is, Joshua is an author and historian and also a professor at his- of history at Yeshiva University. He's written books like Contested Memories, Poles and Jews during the Holocaust and its aftermath, The Polish Underground and the Jews, 1939 to 1945. And of course, his latest book, which is exactly what we've been talking about and exactly what we're going to be continuing in talking about, because where we let off in our last podcast, we actually were talking about Piłsudski, 1900, and his actual arrest. So he is carrying on with his clandestine activities. He has a newspaper with, what was it, 48 editions, Joshua? Yeah, I, I forgot the about 48 editions when, when finally he is arrested and the printing press is confiscated by the Russian secret police in 1900. Okay. This is important because he actually escapes, doesn't he? Problem here is he could end up either executed, God forbid, or back in exile or in Siberia. Right. So this is this is a kind of moment in the book that could become like a kind of Hollywood remake of the life of Pilsudski. Because we are speaking of a man after, you know, six years of, of being number one on the most wanted list in Russia. He's finally captured in the city of Wuj or Lodz in the Western rim of Russia. The printing press is confiscated. And what they want to do is crush this underground party. And he's put into a high security prison first in Warsaw. And he and his followers in the party are trying to come up with a scheme of how is it possible he can get out of this prison? Because nobody knows what's going to be the sentence. When we think back, it's likely that he would have gotten a 10-year sentence of Siberian exile. Probably not execution, probably not a death sentence, because he didn't conspire to assassinate a, a Russian official or you know, um, assassinate the czar, for example, like those whom his brothers was associated with. In 1887. So he probably would have gotten something like, like that, like 10 years exile. But the scheme they come up with, and these are the top members of the party, they start consulting with different specialists uh, in the Polish community. And what they come up with is that it's impossible to escape from the high security prison in, in Warsaw. So they the alternative plan is for Pilsudski to fake insanity 
to get transferred to a mental hospital in St. Petersburg. It's really a place for basically prisoners who are considered to be insane or have, you know, it's called hospital for the mentally insane. And even though it has security because these are people who have broken the law, they determined that that is a place where he could, from where he could escape. So it begins with how is it going to fake insanity? And so what his comrades in the party, uh, you know, what, what they come up with is they consult a Polish psychiatrist to, first of all, advise on what are the symptoms of, you know, insanity? What, what, what would someone have to exhibit for you to determine and drop a report to say, yes, he has gone insane and this is not a proper place for him. He should be transferred to this particular hospital. And now I give a photograph or kind of image in the book of that hospital. And somehow these secret notes are able to be delivered to Pilsudski in the prison. So he understands what's going on. He's given some instructions and he does begin to exhibit uh, symptoms of you know, mental illness and insanity enough. It is determined that he does need to be transferred. So he's arrested in February, 1900, but in the end of 1900, he is transferred to that mental hospital in St. Petersburg. Now there, he, the party is able to concoct a scheme in which they are able to find a member of the party who's a student at St. Petersburg University. He's a medical student. And their scheme is to get him a job at the mental hospital and for him to carry out an escape. This one individual who, the, who, who is just graduating, so he's got this degree, a degree in psychiatry, by the way, his, that's his specialty, is able to get this position at the hospital. He's able to make contact with Pilsudski to let him know, you know, keep doing what you're doing. We're going to be coming up with a scheme and, and this one gentleman is able to find a moment in time where most of the staff leave because it's an extended vacation and there's a thinning out of security. And then he then orders uh, that Pilsitsky come to his office. He needs to examine him and nobody's really suspicious. And in that examination room, he then switches and says, it's now. And he has a, a full regular, he says, take off, you know, your, it's like a prison uniform. He has a, a, a new attire for him, a hat. And he goes, we're going to walk slowly and exit the hospital. And there is a horse and buggy waiting for us. We will get on that horse and buggy and we have a safe house. And so this is how it's done. He actually accompanies this doctor. Kosutsky is now in a suit with a tie and a hat and looks like an, a, or some, he's something that makes him appear to be an official of the hospital and they exit. They get in this like droshki, a horse driven, you know, buggy, and they're driven off to a safe house. And from there, that night, they get on a train to the Estonian region of Tsarist Russia, and then they go southward to different areas. And Pilsudski then reunites with his wife because remember, he was married in 1899 to one member of his party, and uh, she was arrested on that same day. They lived together as a married couple in February 1900. So she had been arrested, but she had already been freed. But then they conspired with her that she would reunite with her husband in this area of Ukraine near Kiev, and then they'd be transferred down to the border with Austria. And by the way, under hot pursuit, because when he got, when he escaped, the Russian police ordered all around, all along the border with photographs that this man has to be apprehended. Somehow he and his wife with uh, specialists to get them out of Russia were able to accompany them to the south and find this one porous region of the border between Russia and Austria. 
And in something like March or April 1901, they crossed the border into Austria. And so that's the story of Pilsudski being freed. Now, nobody knows what's happening. And then he settles in, in Krakow. And it, it's only gradually that people in Austria, which is when I say people, it had a Polish, of course, very um, established Polish community. Of course, Krakow has a Polish majority. But there's also a strong Polish Social Democratic Party there as well. And he, is, he establishes himself there with his wife and his, his um, stepdaughter. And, um, and, and from that moment on, from late 1901, 1902, until the beginning of World War I, he lives in a, this kind of free constitutional Austria. And for the first time, can operate openly under his real name and write and publish under his real name. So it's an extraordinary 12-year period. The first time he lives in a, in a constitutional state with freedom of press, freedom of speech, the Polish socialists have members in the parliament. They have their own press. It's legal and open. And in addition, sorry, he's not living in Paris. He's living in Krakow, you know, which was the medieval capital of Poland and has a Polish majority. It's, it's dominated by Polish uh, culture. So it's really an, an, extraordinary, an extraordinary time for him to experience a kind of democratic, uh, democratic culture. And anyone who today goes to Krakow, you, could, you can actually visit where he and his wife first took up residence in Krakow. There's a plaque there. They moved a couple times, but that's, that, was, that was his home. I'm quite interested. There's so much we could talk about in this time period, but we're going to skip because I want people to actually go out and read the book uh, rather than us talk about the whole book in detail. Okay, but, sure. but 1904 and 1905, very big years for Piłsudski. Uh, and especially things are happening around the world as well. The world's getting a bit shook up in uh, 1904. So tell us what happens in those two years that, that could possibly change things for him. So this is actually a critical milestone moment in the biography of Pilsudski because of the following. So the Russians enter a war with Japan in 1904 called the Russo-Japanese War. So it kind of opens up these possibilities for Poles, which is that their the country that has occupied their lands Zars, is at, is at full-scale war with Japan. So Pilsudski is actually dispatched by his party to Tokyo, and he travels to Tokyo with some of his comrades to try to, to meet with uh, members of the Japanese government, with the top people in the Japanese military, and to try to maybe sign an agreement with them in which they could get the Poles, the Polish Socialist Party, which would proposed that if they could get military aid from the Japanese to expand and create a kind of Polish paramilitary organization, in exchange, the Poles would give military information to the Japanese, something like giving them stats on movement of Russian troops and uh, vital kind of uh, military intelligence, but they'd want a, a kind of Japanese support of, of the Poles and eventually a kind of armed riot. The idea was that as uh, the war between Russia and Japan gets more severe and more Russian troops are dispatched to the east, the Poles could kind of ally with Japan and kind of rise up on the western periphery and seize independence in some kind of cooperation with Japan. Now, the, the proposal was, was rejected and Pilsudski returns. The Japanese did, did give some kind of monetary uh, uh, aid to the Polish Socialist Party because they had shared objectives, which is the defeat of Russia. 
But it is said that the some the impact of that on Pilsudski was profound because meeting with these top generals of the Japanese army, he began a kind of uh, realization or, or kind of current of thought that perhaps the entire Polish romantic insurrectionary tradition, the uprising of 1863, the one of 1830, um, General Kosciuszko's uprising of 1794, all of which have failed. Maybe this is uh, has to be completely replaced, that method of bringing about the aim of independence with the idea of the military solution. And that is, he started realizing that the only thing that's going to expel Russian forces from Polish lands is a conflict between Russia and other great powers in Europe, like Austria and Germany. The Poles themselves, simply in terms of numbers, cannot physically expel the Russians from Polish lands. It has to be that a Austro-German armed force in a war with Russia would expel. So he starts thinking about this and starts really focusing on, on the military. And what is our evidence for that? He comes back from Japan in October 1904. And one month later, he finds himself back and he goes, um, he infiltrates back into Russia he forms something called the combat organization of his party. It was the first military wing. And in the same month as he forms the first military wing, he calls on the first armed action in Warsaw against Russian police and soldiers in Zhebovsky Square. And they, the importance of that is that essentially there was a, a kind of demonstration in which the Russian gendarmes started surrounding with Cossacks coming. And uh, the, the, in the middle of that crowd, there were armed men of the, of the Polish Socialist Party who then opened fire against the Russian troops and they, and they withdrew and there was, there was you know, gunfire and there were casualties and deaths. But, but it was reported in the London Times and in the New York Times that this armed action had taken place, and they noted that it was the first Polish armed action against Russians since 1863. And for Pilsudski, this had a profound symbolic meaning that we've now, you know, that he's pioneered the revival of a kind of, of the nucleus of some kind of military organization. And he saw it as the nucleus. I only just want to say one other thing is that if we go like one year later at the height of the 1905 revolution in Russia, we have this one recollection of, of a close comrade of, of Pilsudski who visited him in Krakow. And what he was surprised at is that Pilsudski, who normally would be thrilled to see that there's now a huge Russian rising among the labor classes against, there's a revolution going on in Russia. And it's the high point of the Russian labor movement and Russia just issued a manifesto for democracy. And this is, you'd think Pilsudski would be, would be overjoyed at this, but this comrade wrote in his memoirs that what struck him is that Pilsudski was completely disinterested in what was going on. He was quiet and then changed the subject abruptly. And all he talked about was military history and the formation of a Polish armed force that could expel Russia from Polish land. So suddenly his focus became totally on the military. And, it, and, and listeners should know that from that time on till the start of World War I in 1914. So what does he do? He forms the Union of Active Struggle in 1908. In 1910, he, he forms the Riflemen's Association. He starts to have 
uh, training courses for Polish officers in Austria. And he, he works with the Austro-Hungarian government and their military um, to get legalization of the Polish mili- paramilitary so uh, hold forces. On. He's creating paramilitary organizations. Yeah. But how is he funding all of this? Because uh, it's not like he magics money from anywhere, from nowhere. He's got to get the money from somewhere. Yeah. So that's an excellent question. What I found is that because he was a pragmatist, the moment he, he founded the combat organization, he also said we need what he called a treasury department, which is collection of funds in order to purchase arms, to purchase, uh, to pay uh, instructors and so forth. Where that came from, I didn't follow many trails, but essentially they were like wealthy landowners who sympathized with the idea. And, and then they had Austrian military support. So they actually, the um, high command of the Austrian armed forces now had direct line with Pilsudski and, and gave their approval to this group, which for listeners to know, conflict between Austria and Russia was 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 increasing and it was likely that there'd be an armed conflict so austria now acknowledged that these polish forces could help them in a war with russia so they were actually starting to give support to the paramilitary forces but i haven't tracked down where, where all the funding came from let's talk a bit more about these paramilitary organizations only because i'm going to be really selfish so my great-grandfather was part of these paramilitary organizations oh interesting yeah the general general in second world war but at the Uh time he was a young man i think he was he was about 17 years old and uh, he joins the the uh the the organization in uh 1912 and he's one of the first organizational guys in there gets his code name, is ready to rock and roll. They were in Tadnov at the time. So, you know, that whole area is becoming rife with, with these organizations. And uh, he writes a little bit about how they would go to school and then in the afternoons they do their training or the weekends or the evenings. And, I mean, he's he's a 17-year-old kid who's been, not that I'm saying dragged because these kids are inspired like Pusotsky was when he was a child by their parents, they're taught Polish, uh, they continue reading, writing uh, and learning about the, the, the uprising insurgents and everything else. Uh, and they're, they're adamant on fighting. I mean, it's incredible to watch how many of these young kids actually join these organizations. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Just curious, did your father write, rec- uh, excuse me, your great grandfather, did he write recollections? Uh, no. About this, or is these stories that came down through the. These family? are stories that have come down, but for example, he, he's more World War II. He's written down his World War II experiences oh. rather than his First World War, which is a really big shame because that would have been really interesting. But at mm-hmm. the time, it's, it's the same as, for example, you meet World War II veterans. It was like, yeah. I was in the uprising and that's about it. And there's nothing, you know, they don't think it's important or exciting or interesting for historians in the future. You're, you're so right about that. Well, going back to your great grandfather in 1912. So by 1912, you now have these established um, paramilitary organizations in essentially in Krakow and Lvov in, in Western and Eastern Galicia. Pilsudski commanded the Krakow one. And then his, his comrade, Kazimir Sosnikovsky, w- was instrumental in, in, in the Lvov chapter, uh, if I'm correct about that. And these paramilitary groups grew to, by the eve of World War I, a, about 7,500 uh, soldiers. And we should note 
how central this was in kind of shaping a Polish national mindset, preparing for the liberation of Poland. But but why were they drawn to Pilsudski so much? Because I believe it was the combination of the national and the democratic ideal. Because remember that Pilsudski included non-Poles and these paramilitary organizations, so Jews, Ukrainians, and women. And so I was struck by reading Alexandra Sterbinska's memoirs. She became Alexandra Pilsudska, Pilsudski's second wife. But she was at this time a member of the combat organization. And she had already, she was in Lvov and Krakow. And she was one of the leaders um, of the women's division of the combat organization. So to me, that's extraordinary. Not just you know, that there was these paramilitary, but they included women. And that factor, I believe, really shaped Pilsudski's kind of like what today we would call feminist proclivities, because he was instrumental when Poland became a state in 1918 in imposing in the first electoral law, the right of women to vote. It's in 19, it's sorry, it's in, on November 28, 1918. It's the first electoral law of reborn Poland. And against the advice of many of his top advisors, who were at the time believed that Polish women tended to vote conservatively, they tended to be more more vulnerable to the views of the Catholic Church, his argument why it must be that women have the right to vote in Poland, and by the way, it made Poland the fourth country in the Western world, long before the U.S., long before France, long before UK. His argument was that back during the period of the riflemen's associations, women had a combat unit. And in World War I, in the legions, there was a women's division. He's like, how is it possible that you can tell women who, who literally put their lives on the line for Poland that they well, were not ready to give you the right to vote? That was his argument. And, I love it. And- you can give up your life but you can't vote. But you can't vote. I mean, and it was, and what's interesting is even on the left, we're talking about his socialist comrades are saying, this is not going to go well for us. We should wait on women. Let's, 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 let's wait and discuss this later. Now it'll just be men and later women, maybe in five years, but we're afraid that giving women the right to vote will skew the electorate towards your opponents who are the national Democrats. But he I mean, it's, uh, it's funny because uh, a lot of his cabinet were women in the end. He had a lot of women advisors. I mean. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
in uh, it's incredible to the amount he's literally surrounded himself with I mean I, we, we all know he was a bit of a ladies man but yeah, <laughs> at the end uh, of the day that's yeah, <laughs> true he, he's still surrounded himself and he's surrounded himself by really smart women for example if I'm not mistaken one of the women in his advisories something along those lines she was actually um, a soldier she uh, she dressed up as a man and she fought in the Polish legions as a man. Oh, wow. And it's, it's just incredible. <laughs> These women. That's fascinating. I didn't know about that. Ah, ah. I was, uh, there we go. I actually wrote that an article be, about her. I know. I'd love to know that person's name and the different things surrounding. But even the idea that not during, but even before World War One, that there's a woman's. And I think it has something to do with Alexandra Sterbinska, who like I mentioned, becomes his second wife and the mother of his two daughters mm-hmm. later on, because she wrote these incredible memoirs that comes out in 1941, which is... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You know, it almost wraps it in more mystery and just that these memoirs come out. You know, Poland, Pilsudski's already perished. Poland is collapsed. And she's in, in exile in London and puts out these memoirs called Pilsudski, a biography by his wife. And she recounts in those her own member uh, for listeners. She was a member of the Polish Socialist Party and they first met in 1906. She was the leader of the, of the munitions division of the combat organization in which she gathered uh, munitions, sales, uh, sorry, purchases. First, first of all, it was gathering the funds, then purchasing munitions, having them stored in secret places and then distributing them from Warsaw to the provinces. That's how she first met Pilsudski um, because he was the leader of the party and she was she was in that role. And then later would, would become part of the women's division uh, of the riflemen, 1912 to 1914, then in part of the legions. You know, so there really is a kind of, what we call that, a very kind of open pluralistic I- ideal, which I believe is what drew a lot of Polish Jews to Pilsudski, because in World War One, we believe that approximately ten percent of the legions were poles of Jewish background or so Polish let's, Jews. Let's stick with this actually, because yeah. it is fascinating. He has a very interesting relationship with Polish Jews. Uh, we could say that. I mean, some of his manifestos, for example, he was actually uh, he used not very nice Polish words. I think if I'm not one of them was uh, was it Zydek he yes, used. Yeah. Uh, Zidkovia, Zidek. I bring this out in um, in the book. It's quite interesting because he uses this not accepted and middle class sort of. For him, I guess it's it's normal, is it? So, um, in my first article about Pilsudski, which I ever wrote, it was in 1998. It was called Joseph Pilsudski and the Jewish Question, 1893 to 1905. I bring this out that. In his correspondence, and these are private, in public, he uses the proper term. In public, I mean in speech and in his articles, uh, which is Jews, Jewish people, and so forth. But in private correspondence, he descends into these pejorative terms, 
which are hard to kind of translate into English, but I think it's something like little Jews. Maybe if you say Zhidek instead of Zhid, um, it's more like that little Jew. It's more, it's, I think the best way to, exa- I think it's probably like, I, I apologize for using this, but for example, Jew boy. Right. That could be one of them. Although I've spent a lot of time looking into this and there's literally one amazing article in Pauline, a journal of Polish Jewish studies, which found it did an analysis of the word in Polish and found that there was about 81 variants oh, wow. in Polish of this. She's, she's uh, this scholar is a linguist and went into it. There's all different variations. And when I asked my mentor in Polish Jewish history, what he thought, he believed that that Jew boy doesn't really capture it. That's more, that's stronger than Zhidek. It really more means the little Jew. So, so it'd be like, there, there's another way to be very pejorative, but it's, it, it is demeaning. But what I found is that he used it only to refer to Jews that were his opponents, but he never used it for Polish Jews who were members of the party or, or kind of, I guess he, he, he agreed with him, uh, but it was these particular figures who were openly in debate with him in uh, essentially in print and, and, and he, and, and he resented them. And so he did use that language. It's true. I remember, I just want to share this, that it's a long time ago, but the first time I ever gave a paper at a conference, it just happened to be that the late Piotr Vondich from Yale, who's like the most prominent scholar of Poland in the United States, happened to be um, a discussant on that panel this would be in 1996. It was the first time I was in graduate school. It was the first time I'd ever given it. It was on this subject of Pilsudski. And I mentioned those terms and I did not anticipate that he would get quite annoyed with that. And he thought it was distorting his, I think his perception is by putting that out in public, it's kind of distorting Pilsudski's attitude, the Jews, that it's suggesting he had a prejudice, I mean- but that really he didn't. And he, it really a kind of, in a way offended him. I think it's important to lay out everything we know and then make make an evaluation well you know he Piłsudski had what you said 10 percent in his in his 10 percent of the le- is what we found in the legions in austria uh descending from austria and, and galicia yeah that's incredible including how many jews he pulled into the party he pushed for them to 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 fight for polish independence and how many of them truly were real fighters for the independence of poland you know and how many right. he worked with and jews that he met in exile and everything else and the policies he tried to push for post war and all sorts of you know these various could you really say we can't taint people with the modern day anti-semitic or non-anti-Semitic brush at the end of the day. We're talking about life was different at the beginning of the 20th century. Yes. I think that's very fair. I mean, my father has often said to me, who is a retired uh, history teacher of American history, often said to me, like in the year 1918 in America, he said, how many, what percentage of Americans do you think were not anti-Semitic? And he, and he, probably, and he said probably like 2% were not, meaning what he thought is, and and it would not surprise him because that was kind of common at the time. He thinks it was just very common to have these prejudices and to, and to project backward our views today. Can we really criticize now? 
It's different if someone's proposing a policy to limit the rights of, of a minority. And that's something that Pilsudski never did because he believed that legal discrimination against a minority was a threat to the democratic ideal. And he just simply would never tolerate that. And I think that's one of the takeaways about Pilsudski that if we say that he was a maverick and he kind of went against the trends of his time. So you can say as he's leading this state with Europe's largest Jewish community and the world's second largest, right? One in every three European Jews lives within the boundaries of Poland. And we have rising fascism in Italy, the rise of Nazi Germany. We have the crimes committed against Jews in in Soviet Russia at the time in 1936, 1937. And Pilsudski regarded all that as central threats to democracy, which is that which is at that moment that you begin to begin to take away the universal principle of law that should apply to everyone, then it, you're going to you're going to see the disintegration of that democratic state, and that's why it seems to be a consensus that while Pilsudski was living, this consensus is that he wouldn't allow these kinds of excesses against minorities. But I don't mean to get up. I didn't mean to get to the 1930s. If we go That's back okay. just to, to the legions, I want to say uh, in my book, I have a photograph uh, of someone named Bronisław Manspril, who was an officer, a Jewish officer in Pilsudski's legions, and he perished on the battlefield in 1915 in a fight with the Russian armed forces. And I put that in, in the book because that figure himself became symbolic later to Polish Jews about the Jewish participation in the struggle for Poland. So much so that in 1931, the famous Polish Jewish artist, Arthur Schick, he came out with this collection of 44 paintings and he called it the Statute of College. And it was was essentially paintings from the beginnings of the history of Poland to the present of moments of what he called Polish Jewish brotherhood. In other words, moments in which Jews were participating in the struggle for Polish sovereignty. And in that book, he has a painting of Bronislav Monspero as a symbol. And then the book itself is dedicated to Józef Pilsudski. And I thought that was important that if you look at that dedication page from a, a Polish Jewish artist, that he's, that he's devoting um, this almost like his life's work, because it was 44 major works of art that he had done uh, to, you know, in 1931, why is he devoting it to Józef Pilsudski, a book about this subject? Because he believes that he is an outcome of this long history of the Jewish struggle with Poles for, for sovereignty. I mean, it's interesting. We've, we've covered, <laughs> we're bouncing around a little bit, which is Yeah, which I'm is sorry fine. that we bounced no? around. We can... We can actually, I like that we were back uh, in 1912, 1913, and with your great-grandfather, I think that's a really critical thing. About I mean, your great-grandfather must have revered Pilsudski, am I right? Uh, he did. If you actually go into Szkoj-Warchiwach, uh, so search the archives, the Polish webpage, and you search for General Władysław Langner, you'll actually find a picture of him and Piłsudski in 1934 oh in God. Warsaw, which is really interesting. I mean, my great-grandfather, he his career was made 
by Piłsudski. You know, first brigade, he was a platoon leader. He fought in the 1920 war. Um, he rose up through the ranks very, 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 very quickly. He's one of, I think, the youngest generals ever in Polish history. It's it's just incredible. I mean, this man's career was made wow. by Piłsudski, and that's who he's got to thank for at the end mm-hmm. of the day. I wonder where this fanatical loyalty came from. <laughs> uh, because maybe your great-grandfather shared in that. There was a sense... Maybe because there was a sense that he really acted for the greater good and that there was a trust in him that he would not veer into into currents and paths that in any way compromise the interest of the state. So somehow people had this trust in him about that, that he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't be, you know, working with another country that in any way threatened um, the, the sovereignty of Poland or threatened Poland's interest for personal gain it's very interesting because if we skip again <laughs> jumping jumping a couple of 10 years uh, into the future but if you look at the second world war being a supporter of Piłsudski in the polish army in exile is not a good thing it is really not a good thing so because then you we've spoken about some of the people you know Sosankowski for example you know pro Piłsudski we haven't talked about Domowski yet who I think is a total arsewipe (laughs) sorry for for being so blunt but he is and then we haven't even touched about uh, Sikorsky and he also he Mm -hmm. despises people that were as you could say in the Piłsudski camp rather you know you had this which we're going to talk about in a minute you're going to have this division between Piłsudski and Domowski and it just becomes just so political and Piłsudski is still years later he's being talked about even though you know we, we doesn't get talked about in the communist period you know it's a bit different and he's just he's he, I mean for god's sakes you go around Warsaw how many statues have you got of Piłsudski you will go to any town any city in Poland the two most common statues you will find anywhere in Poland are Piłsudski and John Paul II uh-huh isn't this interesting i, I mentioned in my introduction that the first one of the first acts of the post-communist Polish government in 1990 was to rename the square in Warsaw as Pilsudski Square in the center of Warsaw, and then a few years later, unveil the first statue to Pilsudski in Warsaw in 1995 in Pilsudski Square, and then three years later, a second statue at the Belvedere Palace, and then I just list all the towns and cities in Poland that erected Pilsudski statues since the fall of communism. And to me, it's very telling that one of the first things that the Red Army did in 1940, when they captured Vilna, uh, well, actually they annexed uh, Lithuania, is they, they knocked down Pilsudski statues. So wherever the Soviets went, they destroyed, they toppled Pilsudski statues. So it's something, you know, to think about the re-erection of these statues was supposed to be very symbolic, but it's all, it, you're right, it's all over Poland. I, I, once, I once did something that I think listeners will, will understand, which is I, I went on Google Maps and I went into Poland and I just wrote in Pilsudski. And then I was kind of startled by all these dots that went down, which is, it's almost like it didn't know how to react because there were so many so many red dots to go at well, Pilsudski Street here and then statue here, but it was all over the country. And so what does that mean? Like, and, and to me, it means that he's the George Washington of, of Poland. He's the repository of all Polish 
ideals and aspirations, and I shouldn't say all Poles, but let's say for a kind of majority in the way that they envision the future of Poland. One thing I bring out is that is that whereas Pilsudski used to be a very divisive figure, uh, he was demonized in, in communist Poland, called a fascist and, and an enemy of progress. Today in Poland, both the left and right embrace Pilsudski. But what you'll see is that the right leaves out the part of his legacy about advocacy for minority rights and pluralism. And the left leaves out the parts of what I call the dark legend of Pilsudski, which we can get to later. And that is the coup d'etat, the kind of like authoritarian turn that happens in his later years. So we have kind of incomplete pictures, but it is a new era when both left and right in Poland embrace. And I only want to just say for listeners that it's very startling to go back to the 1970s, 1980s and read how just the Polish community in Poland and then the Polish diaspora, you can call it, in England, in Australia, in the United States, how Pilsudski was viewed. And we had what in communist Poland, the demonization of Pilsudski, because remember, he was staunchly anti-Soviet and, and they distorted fundamentally his his view and, and tried to write him out of the historical record. It's almost like they tried to banish him. Uh, so he's demonized there. And in the West, in general, Polish Americans and also in, in Great Britain and also some non-Polish uh, uh, scholars like Norman Davies in England, you know, promoted a very positive image of Pilsudski. But then what I found is that in the 1970s and 1980s, there were followers of Roman Demoski. So the of who led the National <clears throat> Democrat. Horrible before, person. Right. <clears throat> Horrible before, person. Who before World War II was a was Pilsudski's greatest opponent, right? And what I found there was that there were some works in Polish that were still arguing that Pilsudski was an enemy of Poland, but it even went farther. So I was just, it's just surprising to read this. Uh, it happens to be someone named Jędrzej Gierek, uh, Giertig, uh, who was a follower of Domowski. And actually the, the publisher of this book in London said the Roman Domowski Society. <laughs> and oh in 1933 <laughs> volume biography of Pilsudski, it's so bizarre for me to read this, three volumes. And all it is is Joseph Pilsudski, 1914 to 1921. It's not even his whole life. But in there, he says Pilsudski was neither a Pole nor a Catholic, and he was an enemy of Poland and an enemy of the Polish people. Yes, the man the who- The main who, claim is that he wasn't Polish and he wasn't Catholic. He was Lithuanian and he was Protestant. God, <laughs> it, I love it's this. So, is that the, it, it, unner, it's unnerving the way. And they said he was a Bolshevik radical socialist who, you know, who did horrible things for Poland. And I'm just reading this and just wondering who, what Polish- person in 1980-81 in London or in Chicago was reading this and going, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me. I could imagine my father, he took part in, uh, in loads of these, you know, anti, anti-Soviet marches and pro-Solidarność uh-huh. stuff uh, back in the day. I could just imagine him reading that and just throwing it down the toilet. Right. It was, I mean, I think it's an upset. The people who are Pilsudski opponents, I realize it's obsessional. So when I looked at this author, Gierek, Gierte, excuse me. by the way, his grandson is in the Polish parliament today, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, Jędrzej Gierte, I looked and in the bibliography, <laughs> which is to me just almost laughable, 
it's really just a bibliography of his own writings. And he listed like 84 writings on Pilsudski by himself. And they're like little articles here and there. So somehow, I'm not sure why Pilsudski inspired such hatred by his opponents. In that sense, like what, who was this guy writing? Hundred, you know, 80 something, 90 something articles and a three volume. I mean, this is a pretty massive three volume history of Pilsudski in just, you know, like a, a seven year period. And is a tirade against him. It's an obsession. I mean, I, yeah. I, this kind of sounds fun. I'm gonna I'm gonna get obsessive over a historical figure, write about a hundred articles, and then slam them in because I said that they were a horrible person, and therefore quote myself, and then right. make that sound like it's primary source material. I think that kind of yeah. sounds like fun. Yeah, it, it it didn't. You know, it does. There's very few footnotes or anything, but it it, it is just a continuation of that pre World War II argument between between Pilsudski's camp and then his opponents on the right. Today, we'd call them populist, but Roman Domovskis. But I really want to go back to World War I. I didn't mean to... That's okay. Do you know why? Didn't mean to depart from World War I. We will come back to World War I, but do you know what? We're going to have to cut this one off. We're going to have to do a oh. third parter. Oh, no, everyone. You're going to have to listen to a third part. I'm sorry. <laughs> I lied to you all. It's not a two-parter. It could be a three or a four or a five-parter, because we have so much to say, so much to discuss, because we're covering such a wide time period that there is so much that goes on. We have to talk about everything. Well, I would be very pleased to do a third part then. Perfect. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We will see you on our third part. And thank you to Josh again for joining us. And hopefully we'll keep your interested sort of peak going. Thank you so much. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.